the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Edma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks, Ching Si, for reading God's word to us. Uh, before we dive in, uh, I'd like to do another plug for the book table downstairs. You know, in Hosea, we've been talking about uh, God's promises, you know, how he promises salvation even in the midst of judgment. Uh, this is a book that will help us to think about God's promises. It's called Believing God by R.C. Sproul. Uh, 12 Biblical Promises Christians Struggle to Accept. You know, it's about how God makes promises. We know these promises. You know, many of us are familiar with these passages in Scripture. And, and yet, we struggle to believe these promises in our lives. You know, we, we fail to kind of live out the truths of these promises in our lives. So this is a helpful book to help us uh, consider these promises and what it means to really trust God. And, and to live according to His Word, His promises, and, and to allow His promises to really shape how we live for Him. So this is downstairs at the book table, so do drop by after the service. Let me pray for us, and then let's look at God's Word together. Let's all pray. Gracious Father, we thank You that we can call You Father. Oh Lord, You are good to us. And Father, we pray that as we come around Your Word, help us to Receive your word with uh, attentive hearts. We pray that you would open our hearts to know you, uh, to trust you. And Father, we pray that our lives would be shaped by your promises because you promise good to us. So help us to come to you now and to rest in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The son had been given everything that he needed, you know, but he was tired of living in his father's house. Now, his father was a good man, but the son longed to do whatever he wanted to do. And he wanted to break free from his father's authority, although you know, he had to admit that his father had only ever been loving towards him. You know, but the son wanted more. Uh, that The son craved the pleasures of life, and he was willing to leave his father, he was willing to forsake his father for the world. 
So, one day he decided. He asked his father for his inheritance, for his share of the money. He packed his bags and left for a far country. You know, some of us will recognize this as the parable of the prodigal son, as told by Jesus in Luke's Gospel. Now, this parable speaks powerfully to us because it, it speaks honestly about life, doesn't it? It reflects the, the messy reality of life, uh, the kind of reality that I think a lot of us can relate to. Having a son or daughter walk away must be one of the most painful experiences in life. And indeed, some of us carry this burden on our hearts, even now as we sit here and, and listen to this sermon. You know, recently, some women in the church came together and uh, prayed for prodigals. You know, this, this happened about a few months ago, and it was a heartfelt time of deep, honest sharing and fervent prayer as, as these women poured out their hearts to God for the prodigals they knew in their lives. And I'm a father of two young boys, and you know, as I see Zachary and Ian grow older, I, mean, I, I feel a deep burden for them. I feel the weight of responsibility on me, a father. You know, how, how can I help them to, to know God and to really walk in His ways? You know, I, I'm, I'm deeply burdened by them. And some days, I just cry out to God for help because I know that I can't change their hearts and I need God to work and to draw them to Himself. So I can relate to these women as, as they came together to pray. You know, I, I need to pray as well. I really need to depend on God to draw my sons to Him. And indeed, we all know prodigals in our lives. And we don't need to be parents to know prodigals. The prodigal in your life may be a good friend. Could be a spouse, a parent even. Could be a close family member that, that you that you care about. We all have someone we care about who has turned away from God. You know, in fact, we ourselves have been prodigals. We have all turned away from God. And indeed, some of us here are still running away from God. Now, what's interesting with Hosea, it shows us that the, the story of the prodigal son, it doesn't just appear in the New Testament, does it? The, the story of the prodigal son is found in the Old Testament as well. Right here in our passage for today. Uh, this, this God of amazing grace that we read about in Luke 15 as Jesus speaks of the parable of the prodigal son, it's the same God, the same gracious God who speaks Hosea 11 to us, which we'll look at today. You know, in the early chapters of Hosea, God had spoken of his relationship with Israel in terms of a marriage. God is the faithful husband, Israel is the unfaithful wife, the adulterous wife who's turned away from God to idols. Here in Hosea 11, God speaks of his relationship as father and son. God is the faithful, loving father, Israel, the son, the prodigal son, who has run away from God. So in our sermon today, just two points. We'll hear first about the plight of the prodigal son, that's our first point, and then go on to focus on how our hope is found in the compassion of our loving father, which is our second point. So first, the plight of the prodigal son. In, in Hosea 11 verse 1, 
God speaks of Himself as a father to Israel. Israel is His child. You know, this, this language of father and child is, is very personal language, just like the language of husband and wife. And God purposefully uses this language to, to show us that He's not a God who is far from us. No, He's a God who draws near to us as a loving father draws near to a child. He's a God who is approachable. He's a God who is completely accessible to us. This is a God who doesn't just stay far from us, but this is a God who delights in knowing us. This is a God who delights in being known by us. So when Israel was a child, God loved him. And the word child there indicates Israel's helplessness. You know, it's, the lang- it's, it's the same word used to describe a toddler. You know, when Israel was a toddler, I loved him. And when we think about toddlers, what, what are we meant to think about? Just this utter dependence on their parents, right? Like if you have a two-year-old, you can't expect a two-year-old to go out, make a living, cook food for himself, and just handle household chores. No, it's, it's, it's just absurd. A toddler is dependent on his parents to provide all that he needs for life, even the basic necessities of life. Israel is this toddler who's completely dependent on God. So God makes the first move. To Israel. Israel could do nothing to deserve God's love. But God set His love on Israel. And this is God's sovereign love. He freely chooses to love Israel, not, not because of anything that Israel has done. So God, when God loves us, he, he sets His love on us, not because of who we are, not because of anything that we've done, but because of who He is. It's the kind of God that he is. You know, this, this is wonderfully assuring to us, isn't it? God's love doesn't depend on what we do to earn his approval. Because of his great love for, for his people, he, he called them out of Egypt. He saved them from slavery and adopted them as his own son. In love, God redeemed Israel to belong to him. And because of what God has done, Israel is now to respond to God by loving Him, by serving Him. But how did Israel respond to God? Look at verse 2. That the more they were called, the more they went away. You know, I, I can relate to this. You know, you know my boys, so those of you who know my boys, they're really energetic. And I think every day, the more I call, the more they run away. <laughs> Especially, you know, just, just notice us after service on Sundays, trying to round them up for lunch. Uh, I, I live out this verse every Sunday, and every day, in fact. You know, but seriously, this, this is what's happening between God and Israel, right? The more God calls them, the further and further they turn from Him. Now, God saved Israel for a purpose, to be His holy people, to display His glory to the nations. Now, that, that's why God saved us as well. Same purpose, to be a holy people, to display His glory to the nations. But instead of being a light to the world, Israel became like the world. Israel behaved like a prodigal son. And you think, was, was it because God was unkind to them? Right? Were they justified? You know, did, was God unkind? And was that the reason why they ran away from their father? Was he an unkind father to them? No. 
you know, we, we often justify our sins by blaming God, right? And if we say things like, you know, if, if God had only given me this, if God had only treated me this way, I wouldn't have done this against him. You know, is, is, that, is that what's happening here? Does Israel have grounds for their turning away from God? Not at all. Not at all. And, and do we realize that all that we are, all that we have, we owe to God? And God in this passage shows that He's been a perfectly loving Father to His people. You look at verse 4, chapter 11. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down. You know, God, the Almighty, bending down. It's a language of servanthood. I bent down to them and fed them. Now, this is the language of overflowing love. So God says, look Israel, I've only ever been loving to you. Have I ever failed you? Have, have I ever done selfish things to you? God gently guided his people with tender, loving care. He provided for them and they lacked nothing. Yet, yet, Israel still turned away from God. I don't know whether we realize that this is what makes our sin especially sinful. Because when we think about sin, it's not just a matter of breaking an abstract law, you know, like, oh, God's the judge, so we break the law and so we sin. It's not just that. Sin is, is, sin is more than that. Sin is spurning the God who is love. You know, sin is looking God's gift in the mouth and saying, thanks, but no thanks. Sin is rejecting the God who has only ever been kind and compassionate towards us. The sin is turning away from the God who knows exactly what we need. When we tell him, no thanks, I'd rather get something else. Sin is ungratefulness to God. It, it's, it's taking God's grace for granted. And this is what makes sin so offensive to God. It's sin against a God who is love. Now, if, if God were not loving, we could say, oh yeah, you know, we have some grounds for sin. But no, this is a perfectly loving God whom we have turned away from. And Israel was prosperous. You know, if you look at chapter 10, Verse 1, they're described as a luxuriant vine. You know, this image of a grapevine just full of clusters of grapes, leafy and full of fruit. You know, that's the image that Hosea uses to describe uh, Israel. They're this luxuriant, prosperous, abundant vine. But prosperity and success can tempt us away from God. You know, this, this is interesting, right? When we, when we think about success, we don't think about success as a trial, right? Now, we think about afflictions, hardships, bad times, etc., etc. We think of those things as trials. But we often don't think about success as a trial. But it is. Israel couldn't handle success. You know how sometimes we tell people, you know, I'm glad you're not wealthy because you can't handle wealth. And in the same way, Israel can't handle success. 
You look at look at ten verse one. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. You know the altars and pillars in in these verses refer to the shrines for idol worship. You know it's a bit like the it sounds a bit like the parable of the rich man in the New Testament in in Luke, where you know the the more wealthy he got, what did he do? He built bigger barns to store his wealth. You know, I just read somewhere that self-storage is a growing business in Singapore. <laughs> right? Why? Because people don't have space in their homes for their stuff. Right? We, we, we need to move to bigger homes to store our stuff. Right? The, the more we have, the more space we need to store our stuff. The, the more abundant they became, the more Israel built altars and shrines to worship their idols. And how, how, how do we handle success? How do we handle success? Does it subtly kind of lure us away from God? You know, this is especially dangerous in a place like Singapore, right? Because what does the culture tell us here? The culture says success is always a good thing. Success, by any means, is always a good thing. I mean, that's that's what the culture says to us. You know, as a parent. Of two boys, you know, young boys in school, I, I feel the, the pull of this as well. You know, I, I'm tempted to think that my boys are okay as long as they are successful in school. Right? You know, I, I can, ex- you know, as a parent, I'm tempted to excuse their character, their behavior, as long as they get good grades. As long as they get good grades. You know, that, that's the pull of the culture on, on my heart. That success is all to be treasured. And anything is fine as long as we are successful, as the world defines it. Success can be subtly dangerous. The more successful we become, the more our hearts are tempted to worship idols like our accomplishments, our relationships, our careers, our health, our wealth, uh, good retirement. Because we define success by these things, right? Like how well we do in life. And then we worship these things. Why? Because they, they, they give us something that we want. Right? These, these idols are just like the surface idols. But beneath these surface idols are what we really want. That's why we worship these things. And what do we really want? Fulfillment, meaning, purpose, pleasure, comfort, security. And so we trust in, in these idols because we think, hey, they, they give us what, they, what we really want. They make us really happy. And, and the more prosperous we become, the more we worship them because we feel, hey, they're, giving the, they're really working. They're giving us what we really want. Success can cause us to depend less on God and more on ourselves. You know, think about your own prayer lives. Right? Think about our prayer lives. When do we pray most fervently? In good times or in bad? When do we pray most fervently? In good times or in bad? You know, one of my friends uh, is, is a dear friend of mine. He's a pastor and he planted a church about 10 years ago, literally from scratch. They, they met in his uh, living room and, you know, as a Bible study. That was 10 years ago. And now, 10 years later, his church has an attendance of about 1,000. So, you know, in, in, in church planting circles, he's known as a, as a successful church planter, right? Someone who took 
something from almost nothing to grow it to such a sizable size. But recently, uh, this friend of mine, he wrote this very insightful article. This was the title. I was a successful church planter and it almost ruined me. That's the title of his article. And in the article, he talked about just the, the draw of success. The, his heart was trusting less and less in God. And there's this line from the article that quite struck me. He said, in my quickly growing church, my lack of faith in God led me to take ultimate responsibility for the church rather than trusting Jesus to build it. Friends, our, our struggle with success isn't a new struggle. Right here in our passage, 10 verse 13, God says to Israel, you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, in, in your military might. 12 verse 8, Ephraim has said, hey, I, I, but I'm rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labours, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Israel's success made them spiritually complacent. They kept up an appearance of being religious, but they were actually far from God. As Sam preached to us last Sunday, merely doing Christian things does not make us a Christian. A Christian is someone who personally knows and trusts in God. A Christian is someone who submits his life, his or her life, to following the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith. And we may, be able, we may be able to fool the people around us, and we can even fool ourselves into thinking that we're okay, but we cannot fool God. So it says in 10 verse 2, their heart is false. Their heart is false. No, God sees our hearts, right? Israel's heart was false. Literally, you know, the word false literally translates uh, smooth, right? Interesting. Their heart was smooth. You know, what, what, is, what does God mean by that? The sense is, you know, we use the word smooth today as well, right? What do we say? You're such a smooth talker. Right? That's, that's the sense of the word smooth. Israel was a smooth talker. Israel was a religious, smooth talker. Why? Because they paid lip service to God. But their hearts were far from Him. They were actually pursuing their own plans, their own dreams, listening to their own wisdom, trusting in their own strength. But they were saying they loved God and worshipped Him. You know, God was at best for Israel an afterthought. Someone to fit into their busy lives whenever it was convenient. Sound familiar? God was patient with Israel. Right? As, as, as this prodigal son was going further and further away from God, God was sending prophet after prophet to pursue them, to speak to them. But Israel did not listen. God says, 11 verse 7, they have oh, sorry, 11 verse 5, they have refused to return to me. And verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. You know, they were hearing without doing, hearing without doing. You know, in, some of you know the, the preacher in London, C.H. Spurgeon. You know, he lived during the 1800s. And, and during Spurgeon's time, Spurgeon was not just the only well-known preacher in London. You know, there were other 
There were other well-known preachers as well in different parts of, of London. So one of the activities, uh, one of the fashionable activities in London was to go and hear preaching. So, so there were lots of people who would, in the morning, okay, I'll, I'll be at the Metropolitan Tabernacle so I can hear Spurgeon. Then in the afternoon, I'll go somewhere else to hear this person. Then in the evening, I'll go somewhere else to hear that person. So s- listening to sermons became a bit of a recreational sport. <laughs> right? they, would, they would go from place to place to hear different preachers, and then after that, they'll come, come together and just discuss who was the best preacher. They, uh, the, they, they came up with a term for this. This was called sermon tasting. You know, like wine tasting, you know, drink and spit. So sermon tasting, right? These people go around sermon tasting. And that's, that was exactly what Israel was doing, right? You, you have these prophets coming to you, and you say, oh yeah, this prophet, yeah, it's quite a good guy, you know, good, good sermon. That one, uh, not so much. This dress is really strange, you know. So they were kind of like listening to prophecies, but they were not really listening, right? They were sermon tasting, just enjoying sermons because, oh, yeah, I, like, I like the way he explained this you know, difficult passage. Wow, really insightful. But, but the word of God was, was not quite penetrating their hearts. And those, the people who are most susceptible with sermon taste, to sermon tasting are people who are in churches the longest time. I mean, this, this is the fact of life, right? That, that we need to beware of, of hearing a lot of sermons, but not acting on them. We need to be beware of doing a lot of Bible study, but not acting on it. That the more we taste God's Word without doing, the, actually the, the harder our hearts get towards God's Word. It's not a static thing. The more we hear without doing, the more our hearts feel that, hey, I can actually get away with not doing anything. The, the harder our hearts get towards true transformation and change. My, my prayer for us as a church is that we never be sermon tasters. That, that we hear the word, not, not who's preaching, but we hear the word and, and really allow the word to penetrate our hearts, regardless of who's standing here preaching, regardless of who's leading the Bible study our hearts are constantly open and challenged to the Word of God. So, so even after today's sermon, right, instead of talking about yesterday's World Cup matches, sorry if you're an Argentina fan, uh, talk, about, talk about the sermon. You know, don't talk about the preacher. Talk about, hey, what, what was that truth that, you, 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 that struck you from the Word of God? How, how will this particular truth about God change the way you live this week? How are you encouraged? How are you challenged? How are you thankful? You know, share about these things with one another. Talk about the word of God that you've heard after the service. And maybe, and maybe next week, ask each other, hey, that thing that you shared with me, how's it going? How can I pray for you to, to live out these truths in your life more and more? God is the faithful husband and loving father. He cannot remain passive as his people turn away from him. He, he will judge Israel and he, he will take away the things that they trust in, their king, their success, and their idols. Look at 10 verse 7 and 8. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters, you know, like kind of driven about by the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. You know, and the judgment on Israel 
It, it, it merely foreshadows an even greater judgment that we read about in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns. The same language is used in that book. So having considered the plight of the prodigal son, let's now turn to the compassion of the loving father. Judgment will come on Israel, as we've seen. They will go into exile to Assyria. But praise God that the story of the prodigal son doesn't end here. Because of the father's compassion, there is hope beyond judgment. As we've heard over the past few weeks, Hosea has really just two main themes, judgment and hope. Judgment, because Israel has been unfaithful, but also hope, because God's love never fails. He will have compassion on his people. Hosea exposes our sin, not to crush us, not to remove our hope of salvation, but no, he, he exposes our sin in order to point us to the true hope for prodigals like us. God wounds in order to heal. You know, as we've gone through Hosea, it says your heart been convicted of how you need to turn back to God. Is your heart convicted now of your need to turn back to God? I'm just going to pause here for 30 seconds. Do some of you need to do business with God right now? I'm just going to pause here and allow you some space to just think, reflect, maybe pray. I think we should do that. Hosea 11 verse 8 is one of the most heartfelt and wrenching verses in the whole Bible. You know, just, just listen to it. Hosea 11 verse 8. How can I give you up? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Atma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. You know, friends, do we realize that this is God speaking? You know, we need to understand that this is God speaking. You know, this God is not disinterested. This God is not a passionless judge who sits in the heavens with his arms folded and says, ah, that's too bad for you, judgment for you. No, this, this is not the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible. How? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? Friends, we need to understand this is the God of the Bible, the God who pleads with us. This is God lamenting over His people with great passion and emotion. God is grieved. He's personally grieved by our sin. 
And yet he cannot simply hand us over to judgment and sort of wash his hands of us. No. God is in anguish. Deep, deep emotions well up within him. He looks at us, his wayward children. You know, as a parent, you know, sometimes you parent like, sometimes I parent like this, right? I kind of talk down to my kids, like, stop it. You know, but, but the most heartfelt times of parenting are when I do this, right? Zachary, do you, do you understand what's happening? Ian, do you know what's happening? You know, when, I, when I kind of bend down and I look them in the eye and I express my heart to them, that's what God is doing here to us. His heart is filled with love and compassion and in wrath, God remembers mercy. Because he can't give up on us. He can't give up on his people. Like a loving father grieves over a rebellious child, so God weeps over us. You know, and those of us who are burdened by prodigals in our lives, this is amazingly encouraging because this God weeps with us. You know, this God doesn't just say, hey, you deal with your problem. No, this God weeps with us. He knows our sorrow. He bears our burdens. You know, this shows how we as God's people should address sin in our community, right? Because God is holy and compassionate, you know, we, we cannot afford to be indifferent to one another's sin. You know, we, we fail to love when we allow a brother or sister to stray away from us without us pleading with them to return. Now, God's compassion means that we cannot be harsh, critical or self-righteous towards one another. No, we, we are to speak the truth in love to one another, to compassionately bear one another's burdens and help one another follow Jesus. Now, the, the praying for prodigals is something that all of us should be doing, not just a small group of ladies in the church. All of us should be weeping over one another. All of us should be pouring our hearts out for the prodigals in our midst. All of us should be reaching out with love and compassion to those who are far away from God. This is what it means to be the church, right? to be the people of God, to, to reflect the compassion of God that we know about in Hosea. This is what it means for us to share our struggles and burdens as a church with love and compassion. Israel has forsaken God but God will not forsake them forever. They will not be totally destroyed, like how Atma and Zeboim were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Psalm 103 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God. Praise God. God will call his people back to himself in a new exodus that will be even greater than Israel's redemption from Egypt. Now it says in 11, verse 10 and 11, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, not in judgment, but in love. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds 
from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. God roars and he calls, he beckons us to come back. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel. The, this holy God forgives sinners like us because of his love and compassion. This, my friends, is the only hope for prodigals like us. And this hope of salvation is certain because it doesn't depend on us. It is anchored on the immovable rock of God's unchanging character and word. Listen to 11 verse 9. I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God, God comforts us with the assurance that He is not like us. God is God and we are not, and praise God that He is not like us. We change our minds, but God is always faithful. We break our promises, but God always keeps His word. And for the sake of His own glory, for the sake of His own character, God will save us. He is the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who is transcendent in glory and who dwells in eternity, but He is also the God who draws near, the God who is, Hosea tells us, in our midst. He is the God who will not come in wrath, but He will come to save His people. Friends, this is our God. This, my friends, is our compassionate Father. He sees us while we were still a long way off and he runs to us. How has the compassionate father drawn near to us? How has he drawn near to you, to me? The father has sent his beloved son to save prodigal sons and daughters like us. Matthew's gospel in chapter 2 quotes Hosea 11 verse 1. But, but Matthew does something interesting. He quotes Hosea 11 verse 1 and he applies it to Jesus. Out of Israel, Matthew says, I've called my son. And who's that son? None other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true son of God. You know, Israel was supposed to be God's son, right? And as God's son, Israel was supposed to be a light and blessing to the nations. But what happened? They disobeyed. Jesus, on the other hand, is the true Son who obeys where we have failed. He's the only ever faithful Son to the Father. And this Son, Jesus, has come to do the Father's will. Jesus, as the true Son, lived the obedient life that we should have lived. And this obedience took Jesus to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus died the death that we as prodigal sons and daughters should have died. But Jesus died in our place, those of us who trust him. And God raised him from the dead to show that he really is the true son of God. That in him there is life, in him there is true sonship and forgiveness. And John 3, 16, 17, these familiar verses say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not a prodigal son, but an obedient son. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Right? I will not come in wrath, 
but I'll come to save. He sent His Son into the world in order that the world might be saved through Him. So how should we respond to this Son, whom the loving Father has sent to us? How should we respond? Return, my friends, return. Return to God. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from running away from God. Repent, believe in His Son, and walk in His ways. Hosea 10 verse 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Now it is time to seek the Lord, that He may come and rain righteousness on you. Verse 12, 10, verse, uh, chapter 12 verse 6, so you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Friends, God helps us to return. Right? He enables us to come back to Him. We were once prodigal sons and daughters, but now God has brought us back to Himself through His Son. You know, the Father has shown us compassion, so now he calls us to be compassionate towards others as well. I'm going to show you this painting by uh, Rembrandt. It's a, it's a well-known painting. You, know, you can see the, the father uh, on the left. That's the prodigal son. You know, he has one shoe missing. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a touching painting of the father welcoming his son back. This is a, a depiction of the compassion of the father. Notice how he's kind of stooped over on his son. He's not kind of welcoming his son back looking like this. Oh, now you want to return, right? No, he doesn't do that, right? He, he stoops over, embraces his son as he is in his ratted, in his paddy clothes. This, my friends, is the compassion that God calls us to show one another. As parents, nurture our children with compassion. You know, I, I say this as a father speaking to fathers I, I struggle sometimes with being harsh on my boys. And, and a passage like this challenges me, helps me to think, God, if, if you are compassionate towards me, I should be compassionate to my two boys as well, patient and loving towards them. As, as children, be compassionate to your parents. How do you care for them? How do you honour them? How are you at work? Are you compassionate? towards your co-workers. In the home, you know, those of us with domestic helpers, we show compassion to the domestic helper who lives with us in our home. Or, or, you know, I know some Singaporean employers exact the last pound of flesh from their domestic workers. May it not be so with us. We show compassion to those who work with us and in our homes. In the church, how do we show compassion and love and patience with one another? In, in society, how do we show compassion to those who are disadvantaged? Do we volunteer time with good causes in society to help those who are less, uh, less advantaged than we are? Friends, this is a call to us to repent of any pride or self-righteousness. You know, put to death the critical spirit in us. 
You, know, you look, at the, look at the painting, you see the elder brother? Now, those of you who know the parable of the prodigal son, the, the focus of the parable is actually not the prodigal son, it's actually the elder brother. You see the elder brother in the painting? You see how he's standing? He, he's, on, he's on right on the right side of the painting. He, you know, he's kind of standing somewhat in the shadows. You know, this is his hands, you know, and he looks very prim and proper. He kind of stands there, erect, his hands in front of him. And he just looks down on his younger brother. Interesting, isn't it? No overture of love, no openness of heart, but he just stands there, stiff, erect. Friends, maybe not be like the elder brother. May God help us to celebrate his compassion and mercy, and all the more when we see his grace and compassion worked out in the lives of those around us. Maybe not stand there and not celebrate, but maybe we pour our hearts out to one another and celebrate his grace in one another's lives. Give thanks for one another. Give thanks for the evidence of grace that you see in the person sitting next to you. Give thanks to God for his compassion. He is the compassionate father who has brought sinners home through his son, and he calls us to return. He calls us to be his compassionate people. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you and praise you. You indeed are praiseworthy. Father, we've just heard from your word of your amazing compassion. And we come to you now as prodigal sons, prodigal daughters. And Father, we acknowledge that we need your grace. Father, we pray that you work in our hearts. Help us to turn to you, to receive you, because you are a compassionate Father. Help us to stop running. Help us to run back to you so that we would find life and joy and peace. And for those of us whom you have brought back, Father, we pray that our hearts would not be hardened. We pray that we might not take your grace for granted, but we would also be a compassionate people in the church, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in, in, the, in the wider community. Father, we pray that we would be known as a compassionate people who, who give ourselves to build others up, to build others up, to give ourselves to help others and strengthen others. So Father, we pray this for us. We, we pray this because we are your people and we pray that you would glorify your name in and through us. Help us by your grace. Fill us by your spirit, Lord, to do what is pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite the servers to come forward. As we now have the joy of celebrating communion together, this feast before us is, is testament to how God is compassionate. These, these elements, the bread, the, the cup, are powerful symbols of God's abiding love for prodigals like us. This feast is 
open to those of us who have placed our trust in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Those of us who have turned away from our sins, who have trusted in Jesus, who have been baptised into His body, this table is for you. Welcome to this feast. And for those of us who have not turned back to Christ, it is my prayer, it's my encouragement to you that you find Christ. Seek Him. Find Him. And find true bread for your souls, true nourishment for your souls. Find in His blood true cleansing for your sins. And I pray that you would not take the elements, but instead take Christ Himself. You might want to spend this time in quiet prayer. As the elements are passed around, feel free to let the elements pass you by. And instead, if you haven't taken Christ, spend the time in quiet prayer, asking God to help you to turn to Him. And for those of us who are prodigals whom God has returned home, let's use this time to really pour our hearts out to God in humble praise, adoration and worship because He is worthy of our gratitude. He is worthy of our adoration and devotion. Let's really spend this time to praise Him. I'm going to invite the service forward as they wait on us. Pastor Oli is going to lead us in prayer. Give thanks for the bread. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, the bread we are about to take points to your human body in which you 